Welcome to Good Morning, the podcast on a mission to open up the conversation around grief and loss with honesty and humour. Hosted by Sally and Imogen, we interview interesting guests to hear how losses shape their lives. Join us as we laugh, cry and drop the odd F-bomb. The Good Morning Podcast. We are your hosts, Sal and Im, and we are back today with an absolutely fascinating topic. But before we delve into it, how are you doing, Sal? Even though I saw you on the weekend. I am doing well. It was so nice to see you in person over the weekend. We caught up, didn't we? And it was lovely. I hate that we live so far. Well, it's not that far away, but far away enough. It's a bit of a drive. Sydney's so just, just massive, isn't it? Like yeah. an hour and a half, like across the city. It's, it's such a huge place, but it was so nice to catch up. So good to see you in real life, IRL. IRL. What's been happening in your world? Um, well, obviously I had COVID. I feel se- mostly recovered from that now. I had Layla's third birthday, which was pretty big you know my mum died right before Layla's first birthday so three months before she turned one so I feel like birthdays have always been a real trigger for me yeah um the first birthday was just absolutely excruciating the second birthday was painful but manageable and the third birthday was even more manageable and I managed to kind of yeah make the most of it with her which was nice and it just you know we've obviously just covered the topic of like how our grief has evolved and I feel like her birthday is like a marker for me a marker in time where I can kind of look back and see yeah how much it's changed for me and how much you know the heavy dark blanket has lifted a bit and I can actually enjoy those sort of moments in my life when I never thought that that was possible so that is so good to hear mate and yeah, it is, a, it is a bit of a marker, isn't it? Like these milestones mm. that can feel really overwhelming at first. As time passes, you kind of learn to adapt and and sort of your grief. It's, it, it's definitely a marker of how you can see your grief evolving and like changing with you, right? And um, yes. And we had actually loads of really positive feedback from our last episode about how our grief has evolved. And so many messages from um, quite a few of you. Some of them were for you, Im, saying, I really felt like the parts that when you were talking about not having your mum as a mum. And then we got some that were um, saying like, you know, thanks to Sal for talking about being able to to cope relatively well and function and go to work because I've been experiencing that and I've been judging myself and questioning whether that's normal. So if you haven't listened to that episode, um, it's it's a good one. We talk about how grief evolves and it seemed to really resonate with a lot of you guys. It did. And it was, it was such a nice thing for you and I to do as well, to go back and kind of see where we were versus where we are now. And it can, for anyone, you know, that's in the early stages of grief, it will definitely give you some hope that you can survive some really hard shit. Yes. (laughs) Hard shit. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) How, how are you going, Sal? I know we've had your recent ADD diagnosis. So what's happening with that? How are you feeling? you know what I'm feeling actually really good um so one thing that I have noticed is it's it's actually helped like with some of my anxiety and kind of enabled me me to sort of focus but cut out some of that background noise um 
One thing I would say though is it's really made me want to be able to, to talk to my mom. And I know that's quite common when you have like things that happen in your life and perhaps, you know, certain sort of, I guess, stages in your life. This feels like a sort of new, a new stage in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to be able to ask all the questions, you know, um, what was I like when I was growing up and, um, you know, were there any signs? And I actually went through all of my old primary school reports, which she kept. And I'd obviously brought back to Australia with me. Um, and it was really interesting going through them all because they literally all of them said that I was a chatterbox that I would do really well if I paid more attention that I need to apply myself more and not focus on what's going on in the classroom all these little things that obviously now looking at it through the lens of of my diagnosis I'm like oh I wonder if that was a telling sign oh and I can yeah I can completely understand that you'd want to have that conversation with your mom and like it's a big revelation to have and I'm sure there's probably many times in your life where you need an an excuse for your behavior too so you could kind of like talk about that with her and and yeah uh, so hard so so hard yeah so sort of like I felt a bit I felt a bit griefy this week in a sense of like that longing like I just want to be able Mm. to ask her things and I can't share this with her and you know it's obviously it's a bit of a different like sharing news it's not like I'm sharing like you know an engagement or something exciting (laughs) but it's still like you know something big in my life so anyway been working through that but I have been feeling better um so yeah it's been a bit of a game changer Um, and excitingly our affirmation cards are also back um we sold out of our first run didn't we but now we're back in stock so excited and we love seeing your stories where you're tagging us in your affirmation cards pulling out your little message for the day we love it Yes. And today's conversation, guys, we are so, so excited for it. It's something that we have wanted to cover for ages, haven't we, Im? And I feel like today's guest is absolutely the most perfect person in the world to talk to us about this. Legit, the perfect person. Guys, as you know, like so many of you, we are fascinated by what happens when we die and whether consciousness survives death. And we know loads of you are too. And I think what happens when we die is a question many of us ask when we lose a loved one. Um, So we're excited to bring to you today, we're going to be talking to someone who has gotten as close to trying to determine that answer as possible, aren't we, Sal? Yes. So guys, today we're going to be speaking with Dr. Bruce Grayson, who is one of the world's leading experts on near-death experiences. He's actually been studying NDEs for like over 50 years, which <laughs> no, is amazing. No small feat. Yeah. No big deal. Yeah, um, NBD. <laughs> <laughs> and he has worked with Dr. Raymond Moody too, who is also really famous in the NDE space. So he's an absolute wealth of knowledge and a lovely man, isn't he? He's just a, such a lovely man. Brucey is so sweet. I'm calling him Brucey because we're like on, yeah, best Aussie. friend basis now. <laughs> yeah. He's so, so sweet. And so, yeah, just I loved our chat with him. Yes. And what was really interesting, actually, is he comes from a scientific family and he didn't start out believing that consciousness lives on after we die. It's something that he experienced through his patients and that kind of led him down this path of researching it. But he, oh, it it blew my mind, this conversation, to be honest. And I think this is sort of, yeah, why we really wanted to speak to Bruce before we explore this topic more, because we we are 100% getting an NDE survivor on the podcast soon, guys, to delve into their story and what happened to them, which we are over the moon about. Um, but 
we just wanted to hear that there is scientific research. Like he's had 50 years researching this topic, you know, and he's, he's a very intelligent man and comes from a scientific background. So everything he has to say just brought us both so much like hope, didn't it sound and comfort that this is like, there is something going on after we die and some things that we can't explain happen. It's absolutely fascinating. And we hope it brings a little bit of comfort. Bruce, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you, Samel. <laughs> it's so nice to have you join us. And, and we've been wanting to explore the topic of near-death experiences for quite some time now. And who better to cover the topic than you? I'm delighted to be with you today. It's it's so nice to have you here. And alongside your professional career um, of psychiatry and neurobehavioral sciences, You've been studying near-death experiences for over half a century, which is pretty impressive. So your book, After, and your work in this field offers just such an absolutely fascinating theory that views death not as an ending, but Mm. as a transition. And as many of our listeners, Bruce, have experienced a loss of a loved one, including us, our mums, the thought of there being life after death just brings us truckloads of comfort, which is why we're so excited to yeah, talk about this topic with you. Yes. It was a sp- surprise to me to find about near-death experiences. I was raised in a uh, materialistic scientific household where we never had any thought about, about spirituality or religion. And we just assumed that when you die, that's the end of it. And you know, we never give any thought to that. And then when I, so I went through college and medical school with that mindset. Um, and then I was stunned when I started confronting patients who described leaving their bodies and seeing things accurately from an out-of-body perspective and encountering deceased loved ones and so forth. I'd love to know, how did it all begin for you then? Like you come from um, a scientific family, like how did this 50 years of research into NDEs begin? Uh-huh. Well, yeah, I, I, I was raised as a scientist, which means when you find things you can't explain, you try to understand them. Uh, you don't run away from them because you can't understand them. So when I started encountering near-death experiences, of course, there wasn't a name for them back in those days in the early 1970s. I just was encountering people who said that they had you know, encountered their deceased loved ones when they were almost dead themselves. And I couldn't make any sense out of this. Um, I just heard one or two of these stories, and I just sort of dismissed them until 1975, when one of my colleagues, Raymond Moody, published a book called Life After Life, in which he gave us the name near-death experiences and told us what they were like. And he had interviewed some 150 people who had had these. And that was my first uh, hint that these weren't just one or two strange patients uh, saying things, but this is a real event that was going on all over the world. I still couldn't understand it. So I decided as a scientist, it's my obligation to try to study it and figure out what's going on here. So I started collecting cases. And here I am 50 years later, still trying to understand it. It's incredible. And Bruce, can you please explain to us your first encounter with an NDE? I have heard the story before with the the stain on the shirt. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. Well, it was when I was a brand new uh, psychiatrist. I wasn't doing my, my training at the university and I was an intern. And I was covering the emergency room and I was having my dinner one night um, and I had a a pager on my belt that would beep when they, when they wanted me to so see a patient and uh, it beeped and it's startled me. So I kind of dropped my fork and splashed some spaghetti on my tie, some spaghetti sauce on my tie. 
Uh, I tried to wipe it off and it couldn't, I just made it worse. So I put on a white lab coat and buttoned it up so to, to cover it so no one would see it. And then I went down to the emergency room to see this patient who was brought in with an overdose. And in fact, she was unconscious and I could not arouse her. But her roommate was waiting for me down the hall in another room, maybe 50 yards down the hall. So I went to talk to the roommate for about 15 or 20 minutes. It was a very hot uh, evening uh, at the end of summer in I don't know, Virginia is a very hot place anyway. Um, so I was starting to sweat. This is in the early 1970s when there's no, there was no air conditioning. So I unbuttoned my lab coat just to keep from sweating. And I inadvertently exposed this stain on my tie to the roommate. We talked for about 15, 20 minutes. And then I stood up to say goodbye to her, realized that my stain was exposed. So I quickly buttoned it up again so no one else would see it. Then I went back to see the patient and she was still unconscious. So I arranged for her to be admitted to the intensive care unit overnight. When I saw her the next day after she had finally awakened, I started to introduce myself and she said, I know who you are. I remember you from last night. And that kind of stunned me. I didn't know what she was talking about. So I said, gee, I, th I thought you were unconscious when I saw you last night. And she said, not in my room. I, talk I saw you talking to my roommate down the hall. And wow. that just stunned me. I didn't know what she was talking about. I couldn't imagine how that could have happened unless she left her body and followed me down the hall. And as far as I could tell, you are your body. How can you leave it? Yeah. That and then she went on to tell me about the conversation I had, including the stain on my tie. So I couldn't deny that somehow she got this information. I didn't know how. So fascinating. And, and when you had that experience, did that propel you into your research or did you just think, okay, that was bizarre and kind of carry on? Like, what was it that kind of made you gradually kind of start to, to do your research in this field? Well, actually, it made my skin crawl. I was kind of scared by this. Um, I didn't know what to make of it. It didn't make any sense. I thought someone's got to be playing a trick on me. Uh, it's just one of those weird things to try to push it out of my mind. And then as I started hearing more and more of these stories, I started taking, starting to take them seriously. And several years later, when Moody published his book and gave us the name Near-Death Experience, I thought, well, I need to study this. And that's when I started starting to look for cases and collecting them and trying to see patterns among the different cases. Amazing. And for anyone listening who may not have heard about anything like this before, how would you describe a near-death experience? It's a very profound thing that happens to many people when they come close to death or sometimes when they're pronounced dead. Um, again, in the context of a near-death event, you're usually in a lot of pain. You're very frightened. Your brain is not thinking properly. Uh, sometimes it shuts down entirely. And yet in the near-death experience, your thinking is clearer and faster than ever before. You have very strong emotions, very positive, pleasant emotions. Most people say it was a blissful experience. You have a sense of leaving the physical body and seeing things from outside your body, often watching the resuscitation of your body. And you may feel like you leave the physical world behind and go to some other realm, some other dimension where there are other beings that maybe um, you may interpret those as deceased loved ones or, or deities or gods of some type. And many people, as part of this, go through a review of their entire lives. I found that, that aspect of it quite fascinating. Can you explain a little bit more about the review that people have experienced? Yeah. yeah. 
This has been described by hundreds of, of, of people throughout the, the centuries. Uh, we have accounts going back to ancient Greece and Rome about this, um, where people are in the midst of a, of a near-death crisis and suddenly their entire life comes before them in intimate detail. And it will take uh, hours and hours for them to tell you about it, but it happens in the flash of an eye. The whole thing happens very quickly. And it's not just remembering things, it's actually reliving things. And what's most remarkable about this is that in many cases, they re relive the events, not only through their eyes, but through the eyes of other people involved in the incident. If I can give you an example of this, one fellow I knew, um, he was in his 30s when he, he was working under his truck, under his lorry, and it fell and crushed his chest. And he stopped breathing and he had a near-death experience and he had many, many parts of this experience, but one part was the life review. And he remembered being a teenager and driving his truck and a drunk man walked in front of his truck and almost, he almost hit him. He got very angry, stopped the truck, rolled down his window, started yelling at this man. And the man being quite intoxicated, reached his hand in the truck window and slapped Tom across the face. That was too much for this hot-headed teenager. So he got out of the truck and started beating the man up. And at the time, he was just full of rage, beat the man up, got back in his truck and drove away. Well, he had his life review. He felt this from his own perspective, feeling the adrenaline rush, the rage. And he also felt it at the same time through the eyes of the man he was beating up. He felt the 32 blows of his fist on this guy's face. Now, he couldn't have told you there were 32, but living it in the life of you, he counted them, 32 blows. He felt the man's teeth going through his lower lip. He felt the man's nose getting bloody. He felt the humiliation of being beaten up by a teenager. And all this happened in the flash of an eye. And when he came back from his near-death experience, he said he now realizes that what we call the golden rule do unto others as you would have them do unto you. It was not just a guideline we're supposed to follow. This is the way the universe works. And when you hurt other people, you're hurting yourself as well. And when you help other people, you're helping yourself. And I've heard this again and again from near-death experiencers. They say in the life review, they see the effects of their behavior on other people. And that changes them. How would you respond to people who don't believe that consciousness is separate from the brain? Well, that's the way I started out. I assumed that the mind is what the brain does. Um, but I've seen enough people now who had severely impaired brains who are in fact quite unconscious and yet had very vivid mental things going on, forming memories, having perceptions, uh, thinking clearly. Um, it just doesn't make sense that you could do this with a severely impaired brain. Furthermore, many people describe seeing deceased loved ones in their near-death experience. Now, it's easy to dismiss that as wishful thinking or expectation, but we have a number of cases now well-documented where people will encounter in a near-death experience someone who is deceased but was not known at the time to be dead. No one yet living knew the person had died. Wow. wow. Which kind of implies that this dead person was still there in some form. And I don't know how to explain that if you assume that the mind is just what the brain does and nothing else. Talking of whether consciousness lives on, 
one of the most fascinating parts of your brilliant book after is where you discuss the mind brain link and the alternative theory that the mind is not produced by the brain yeah, but yeah. works together yeah how how can there be mental activity when the brain is impaired like how can that be yeah well it can't be if if the brain is creating the mind but there's another model where the brain transmits or filters the mind. And people often use the model of a television set or a radio receiver, where there are hundreds and hundreds of television stations out there broadcasting towards you. And if you tried to watch them all at the same time, you wouldn't be able to understand any of them. So you use a television set, which receives all these signals, filters out all but one, unless you see the one show you wanna watch. Now, this is like the brain receiving thoughts from the mind. When the television set is broken, it's hard to see the show. But that doesn't mean the television set is creating the show. It's just receiving it. And in the same way, the brain may be receiving your thoughts, not creating them. This sounds like a, a strange model, but it's really very old. Hippocrates wrote about this 2000 years ago. Uh, and people have been describing this in various metaphors um, over the centuries. It's, it's amazing that it has been spoken about all those years ago, yes, and it's something yes. that, you know, it still feels fairly fresh. Just jumping back a bit, in our, we in, so we, we watched you in Surviving Death, which we loved, by the mm -hmm. way, and mm -hmm. we also interviewed Leslie Kane, who obviously wrote the book Surviving yes. Death, which was the inspiration behind the Netflix documentary. And um, she said that, there are more and more scientists kind of yes. who are getting interested into the idea that consciousness is not gener generated by the brain. But right. as you've been studying NDEs for over 50 years now, Bruce, what was it like? I know you sort of mentioned that you sort of forgot about it and there wasn't really a name for it, but were you kind yeah. of afraid to talk about it with other scientists back then? Uh, I was, I was, but the more I studied it, the more it became impossible to, to not talk about it. It became such an important part of, of what we know about human beings and how they function. And it became kind of ridiculous to, to not talk about it. And what finally convinced me was looking at how these experiences affect people's lives. People are never the same after a near-death experience. And psychiatrists, such as I am, are in the business of trying to help people change their lives. And it's, it's hard work. But here you have an experience that in the flash of a second can totally transform someone's attitudes, beliefs, values, behavior. It's much more powerful than any tools we have. So I thought we need to get other people interested in this and studying it as well. And we need to have doctors and nurses, health professionals know about these because their patients are having them all the time. Yes, and, and something that um, you said when you were in the Netflix documentary is about um, when people, when their hearts stop, I think it's between 10 and 20% of people, you said, have a near-death experience, which right. when you think about it, that's quite a big number, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is. Uh, and we have no idea why um, only 10 or 20% do and why the others don't. We tried to look at all the different variables Nothing that's going on physiologically in the body can explain it. Nothing going on with the personality of the person seems to explain it. We just don't know why some people have them and some people don't. I should also say, though, that 
10 to 20% tell us about them. Yes. There may be more people who have them, but aren't willing to talk about them or for some reason can't remember them. There's something that we've heard you talk about before, which we also found really fascinating. All of your work is so fascinating. Um, but that was that death is not a point in time, but rather a process. And you yeah. said that it takes hours, if not days, for the brain to die and that people might not realise it happens gradually. And that's something that both Sal and I had absolutely no idea about. So that was so yeah, fascinating. Yeah. yeah, well, this is something that a lot of doctors don't pay attention to also. Um, but doctors who work in critical care situations, uh, like Dr. Sam Parnia in, in New York, who was originally from the UK, have written a lot about how this, how the brain does not die all at once. The body, body does not die all at once. Um, as you sort of lose um, heart rate and, and you lose uh, oxygen flowing around and getting oxygen and, 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 and uh, fuel to the brain, different cells die out at different rates. So it may take um, minutes or hours or sometimes days for all the cells in the body to die. Now, within a few minutes, you lose the integrity that keeps a person, quote, alive and functioning normally. But parts of the body may continue functioning for quite a while after that. I think a lot of people probably wouldn't even know that. Like you say, a lot of doctors aren't really aware, aware of it or don't right, focus right. on it. I think we think when we die, like that's it, you know, the brain shuts down sort of almost immediately. And um, something I found really interesting that you've said before as well, Bruce, is that um, evidence shows that NDEs, near-death experiences, are actually very different from hallucinations. Yes. Yeah. They differ in a lot of ways, and many, many clinicians have written about this. They differ in the context in which they occur. They differ in their content. Near-death experiences are pretty much the same from person to person, from culture to culture. Going back in the centuries, we can see cases written up in ancient Greece and Rome that sound like cases we see today, and we see them from Christian cultures, from Hindu cultures, Buddhist cultures, Islamic cultures, that are all basically the same. And hallucinations are not the same from one person to another. Each one is idiosyncratic. But the most important difference to me is the way it affects people. Most people who have hallucinations forget about them very quickly, and they don't want to be reminded of them. They're not pleasant. Whereas near-death experiences are tremendously impactful and they the memory of them does not fade uh, because i've been doing this work for so long i can go back and interview people i interviewed 30 40 years ago and have them tell me the story again and it's just as vivid now as it was then i've talked to people who were in their 80s and 90s who had an nde when they were teenagers and they say it's like it happened yesterday i've never forgotten a single detail of it and it makes them lose their fear of death and dying it makes them feel much more joyful about life. It makes them feel much more spiritual, much more invested in uh, relationships and much less interested in physical things, not only material possessions, but power, prestige, fame, competition. They become much more cooperative, much more altruistic than they were before. And I think that doesn't so happen with these nations. Yeah, and I think all of those things give us as grievers so much hope and comfort as well like thinking you know our mums Sal and I our mums died suddenly yes. so we just yeah we have all obviously all these unanswered questions and where are they what's happened to them are they safe right. is it is it an, a nice experience is it are they frightened like all of these things have gone through our mind so 
covering this topic and learning about near-death experiences has been so comforting for us in our grief as well. Yeah, yeah, it is comforting. And, and it, you know, it's hard for me as a scientist to say I believe anything, but you can't talk to these near-death experiences for so long and not absorb some of the, the feeling about it. Mm. And, you know, when I started this work, I didn't think death was anything. I thought just, it's just the end and there's nothing else. Mm-hmm. And now I, I, can't, I can't buy that anymore. It just, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit the facts. So I think there is something after death. And from what the death experiences say, it's something you should not be afraid of. It's something that's pleasant to have. Now, what it is, I can't say, because when you talk to near-death experiences and say, tell me what happened, they usually say, I can't. There aren't any words mm-hmm. for what happened to me. It just, it just doesn't fit into, into the English language. And then we say, great, tell me about it. You know, so we're making them make up or, or may use metaphors. So they give us metaphors and the metaphors come from their, their culture or their religion. So I don't take what they're saying literally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I take the emotion literally, but the actual details of what they're saying are sort of metaphors for what really happened to them. We've heard a story actually um, that someone who experienced a near-death experience, like they found it really hard to come back to real life, like materialistic life, whatever you want to call it. They found it really difficult to adjust back and kind of almost felt like they would rather have gone back to that other place that they went to. Have you heard much about that? Oh, yes, yes, yes. A lot of people are either very sad to be back here or they're very angry to be back here. They're often angry at the doctors and nurses who brought them back. Um, and that usually doesn't last very long, though, because they feel that they, they now see there's a meaning and purpose to everything that happens in life. Mm. And they think, well, even though I don't like being here in, the, in this world, I'm here for a reason. And I need to figure out what that is and fulfill my mission here. And they also end up feeling, if there's no, nothing to fear about, about dying, then you can take risks. You can live life to the fullest and not be afraid of making a bad mistake and dying because that's fine too. So they end up enjoying life much more because they're much more free to live it for the moment, live it fully. It's, it's so comforting to know that, that that is, you know, the experience that so many people have. I think like Im said, as mm. grievers, you know, and a lot of our listeners as well, you know, you, you do try and sort of comprehend where your loved one's gone to and it's so hard to comprehend so having conversations like this today it just brings so much comfort so I just want to say thank you for the work that you do because it is so important and um yeah yeah, it's just absolutely fascinating and you share a lot of stories in your book about the patients that you've seen over the years but we would love to know are there any NDE stories that really stand out for you that you found particularly impactful well there are so many it's hard to pick out one one that that was most startling to me um, was a fellow who uh, saw someone who was dead but he did not know she was dead Um, and these are the hardest for me to understand intellectually how this could possibly be this is a fellow who was in his early 20s, who was admitted to the hospital with a severe respiratory problem. He couldn't breathe. And he had many different problems, but severe pneumonia. And he had one nurse who worked with him every day, a nurse named Anita. And she was about his age, very young. And at one point she told him that she was going to be 
uh, going away for the weekend and there'd be other nurses substituting for her. So he sent her off on her way. And while she was gone over that weekend, he had another respiratory arrest where he couldn't breathe and he had to be resuscitated. And at that point he had a near-death experience and he found himself in some beautiful pastoral scene. And there to his surprise, his nurse Anita came walking towards him. And he said, what are you doing here? And she said, Jack, you have to go back to your body. You can't stay here with me, but I want you to find my parents and tell them that I love them and that I'm sorry that I wrecked the red MGB. And then she turned and walked away. And later when he woke up back in his hospital bed, he remembered this very vividly. And he tried to tell this to the first nurse who walked into his room and she got very upset and ran out of the room. It turned out that his primary nurse, Anita, had taken the weekend off to celebrate her 21st birthday. And her parents had surprised her with the gift of a red MGB. She got very excited, jumped in the car and took off for a drive, lost control and crashed the car and died instantly, just a few hours before Jack had his near-death experience. At the time he had that experience, no one knew she had died and certainly no one knew how she died and yet he knew and he said, the way I knew is that she told me. So I, I can't understand how he could have gotten that information unless somehow his deceased nurse, Anita, could have told him that. That is mind-blowing, really, isn't it? It blew my mind, yes. In your book, Bruce, you talk about a fellow uh, near-death experience researcher, Dr. Jen Holden, and yes. she reviewed with you 93 reports of NDEs and 92% of those were verified by sources as accurate and only 1% was completely wrong. Am I right? Right. She was looking at near-death experiences in which people claim to leave their body and see things from an out-of-body visual perspective that other people could potentially verify. And as you said, in 92%, other people said it's completely accurate. That's just incredible. I mean, the, the yeah. statistics say it all, don't yes. they? Yes, they do. Yeah. And for the thousands of NDEs you've studied, what are some of the key commonalities? Well, of course, there are commonalities in the experience itself, the enhanced thinking, the strong positive emotions, the sense of leaving the physical body and traveling to another realm, reviewing your life, um, seeing deceased loved ones, sometimes seeing other beings that they may identify as deities, they may, may not. Um, they will often say, I encountered this warm, loving being of light that radiated unconditional love towards me. And if you press them to say, what, what was this? Sometimes they'll just say, I don't know, it's just this, this being of light. If you're talking to someone raised in a Judeo-Christian culture, they may say, it was God. But people raised in a Hindu or Buddhist culture will not say that. Um, and even those who he here in the U.S. or in Australia will say, I'm going to call it God so you know roughly what I'm talking about. But this wasn't the God I was taught about in church. It's totally different from that. So they're just using whatever metaphors they can come up with to try to convey to us what, what, what it was like. But beyond, beyond the experience itself, a strong commonality is how it changes people's lives. And I mentioned that it makes people less afraid of, of dying, less afraid of death. And that's surprising because they almost lost their lives. 
And you think that would make people more afraid of dying, but that's yes. just the opposite with them. And it makes them more spiritual, not more religious. They often say, I feel equally at home in any house of worship of any denomination. And the dogma is irrelevant. The point is the feeling of communing with the divine. Isn't that interesting? And just, just on that point of cultures and religions, out of all of the NDEs that you've studied, did you notice any sort of similarities or consistent patterns there when it comes to sort of people of certain religions experiencing like NDEs? Well, not consist, not differences in the experience itself, mm. but on how they describe it. Uh, for example, many people report being in this physical world, maybe watching the resuscitation of the body, and then they find themselves distracted and pulled to some other realm or other dimension that doesn't seem to be a physical world at all. Mm. And they will often say that they went through this long, dark, enclosed space to get from here to there. And many Westerners will say, I went through this tunnel. And the tunnel is just a metaphor that Westerners use. People who grew up in third world countries that don't have a lot of tunnels won't say that. And I've heard people say things like, I went into a cave, went through a cave, or I fell into a well. Um, and one person I, I interviewed who was a, a driver, a truck driver, said he got sucked into a tailpipe. And that was his metaphor for the long, dark, enclosed space. So the culture will determine how people describe it, but it won't affect what they actually experience. And do people always have positive experiences or have there been reports of negative ones as well? There are some reports of frightening or distressing experiences. Um, most people who have tried to study this find that between one and 5% of near-death experiences are unpleasant. But again, we're just looking at what people are willing to tell us. I know from talking to these people that it's very hard to share these experiences. They feel that there must be something wrong with them if they didn't have a pleasant one. So they don't want to talk about it. Mm -hmm. They don't even want to think about it. And we've tried to look at what's different about these unpleasant experiences. And the thing that comes to people's mind is that people who lead evil lives will have bad experiences. That's not true at all. Um, I've talked to people who were career criminals, who were murderers, who had beautiful blissful near-death experiences. And I've talked to people who had apparently exemplary lives who had unpleasant experiences. And that shouldn't be so surprising because we have uh, records from the Catholic saints going back centuries, talking about the dark night of the soul, um, St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross, who wrote about terrifying spiritual experiences as something you have to go through before you get to the blissful part. Most people who have unpleasant experiences as they describe it to you, describe what sounds like a blissful experience, but to them it felt frightening. And this is the majority of unpleasant experiences. And a lot of these people are people who are very controlling in their lives, and they're very threatened by being out of control. And when they find themselves in the near-death experience, they're not in control of that. And it's frightening for them, and they try to resist it. And that is what's making it so, so unpleasant for them. And some of them at some point will get exhausted trying to fight it and they'll just surrender. And as soon as they surrender, it becomes, it becomes blissful for them. There's also a small number of experiences that pe people find themselves in a black void with nothing, no sounds, no sights, just nothingness. And they think, this is where I am for eternity. And for most Westerners, 
that's a very terrifying thing to happen. So the experience is very unpleasant. But I've also talked to people who were raised in Hindu cultures who said, I was there in this black void with nothing and it was blissful. That was nirvana for me. So your culture determines how you interpret this experience. Mm. That's so interesting. So interesting. And as you have sort of said, like, you know, the people that have negative experiences often have a fear of not being in control of their lives. And I feel like I yeah. relate to that so much. <laughs> and I have this yeah. like massive fear of, of death. But I think this having this conversation and, and understanding, you know, what, what can potentially happen gives, yeah, like I said, just gives a lot of comfort. And I think like, having the idea of like not living in fear is so, yes. so good. And I think that's, you know, what, what a lot of people who have had near death experiences mm-hmm. have experienced since yes. they came back and didn't actually die, which is just, yeah, it's just amazing work that you're doing, Bruce. It's so good. Yeah. yeah. Now you asked before how, how it's affected me um, to, to do all this research. And I say that it does, hasn't given me any answers but it's made me feel very comfortable with not having the answers. Mm. When I started doing this work 50 years ago, I thought science is going to come up up with all the answers. And I didn't like not knowing for sure. And after all this research, I'm pretty well convinced that the world is is a friendly place. And that what happens when you die is not something to be afraid of. And that makes me feel very comfortable with not having the answers, with just trusting that it's okay. So in you sort of, it's made you, I guess, not afraid of, of death anymore. Is that, well, would that true. be right to say? <laughs> I, I'm not, but I wasn't afraid of death before. I just thought it was nothingness. Yeah, and that's not yeah. something to be afraid of. It just, you die and that's the end. And now I think it's not going to be the end, but it's also not something to be afraid of. And I think the thought of like meeting out, potentially meeting our loved ones as well yes. on the other side or wherever it is that we go like that just gives us all so much hope and, and comfort too yeah. especially you know when we're coping with loss yeah yes yes and Bruce I know that loads of our listeners will be loving this conversation and they'll want to know more so can you tell us where they can find your book and I believe it's now out in paperback isn't it it is yes um it's it's published uh worldwide and you can get it in in amazon and really any place that sells books should should have this um i have a website which gives you links to ordering the book it's uh www.brucegrayson.com and that's b-r-u-c-e-g-r-e-y-s-o-n.com which is probably how australians would spell it anyway but not the way americans would spell it (laughs) (laughs) it's called after and it's absolutely brilliant we'll link it in the show notes we'll link your website as well bruce thank you so much for giving us your time today it is such a fascinating topic something that brings a lot of us so much comfort when we've experienced loss so i feel like we've got so many inspiring thoughts after this conversation so thank you for your time just it's absolutely fascinating and we're so appreciative oh thank you Sal. thank you Wim. i've been delighted to talk to you the father of NDE research, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. It's just incredible. I think when he, especially when he said like about how many NDE survivors experience that life review through not only their eyes, but other people's too. Like so much of this chat was just mind bending, wasn't it? 
It really, really was. And guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast, we'd love it if you could leave us a rating or a review as it helps the pod get seen by other people. And until next time, guys, we'll see you soon. Thank you.